education and civics have gone hand in hand since our nation's founding. Much of Thomas Jefferson's writing focuses on the need to prepare citizens to properly interact with our democracy. And even now, that same line of thinking is one of the most effective arguments in favor of a strong public education system. All of this is to say that Miss Groom, who teaches both American history and American government and politics at PHS, teaches at the intellectual core of our educational system itself. But for a class about government and politics to teach students how they should think about government and politics, you have to work through all sorts of tricky problems. What does it mean to be a good citizen? Do we have a moral obligation to be quote-unquote political? Why does history matter? Thankfully, Ms. Groom, whose undergraduate degree was in philosophy, and who came to PHS after years of focusing on political and educational activism, is up to thinking about these questions and, happily, to discussing them with me. Talking to her about America's history and the nation's political climate today was truly a delight, and I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Along the way, we'll touch on tons of different topics. We have a lengthy discussion on how we might include discussions about climate change in non-science classrooms, which I thought was fascinating. But we'll always come back to an idea that Ms. Groom has about why cynicism, the lens through which it seems most students view politics today, is simply a less effective political or intellectual tool than hope. I'm Alexander Margulis, and you're listening to PHS Talks. Ms. Groom, thank you so much for being on the show. So you teach both history and government and politics at PHS. What's the difference? Well, certainly grade level. History I teach is US 1, so it's ninth graders versus now AP GovPol is seniors, used to be juniors and seniors. So, you know, sophistication of thought and stuff is pretty different. But in terms of content, the history course certainly has elements of civics, what it means to be a citizen in this country today, what are American ideals. And so there's some overlap in terms of content, um, but it's much more the history course looking at, you know, colonialism and the development of a democratic republic and things of that sort. So more of a straightforward chronological history course than we managed to do in AP GovPol. Yeah. I, I want to talk first about history and then about GovPol, and then maybe combine them a little. But but starting with history, there's this impulse to say that kids come into the classroom with this kind of collection of American myths, right? Uh, the mm -hmm. glory of the founding fathers, mm -hmm. the righteousness of our troops, the triumph of capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, but in a lot of ways, I think kids come into high school level classrooms, in Princeton uh, especially, with uh, just some knowledge about the parts of our history that are already, you know, paved over in a lot of places, right? Like the genocide of indigenous communities, collapse of reconstruction, you know, the, the horrors of the war in Vietnam. So I'm wondering, and this is kind of a two-part question, first, how are kids coming into your classes thinking about and reckoning with American history? And second, how do you hope that changes over the course of the year? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess actually that's really interesting um, that you would say they come in when you say paved over. Um, my impression would be that many ninth graders, well, number one, that they tend to think, oh, US one, pre-Columbian history up through the late 1800s, oh, who cares? And so that I see as one hurdle. And I would say that I think a lot of kids don't seem to have or aren't yet ready to express what they understand about areas of US history that are 
based on genocide, subjugation, and so forth, that they really aren't that familiar with those ideas, is my impression. Yeah, definitely. So part of the goal of you know the class is to introduce them to those ideas. I guess the, the, the bigger question here is, what is the point of learning history, and what is the mm. point of learning American history? Uh, and, and specifically, you know, you hear a lot that history is important so that we don't repeat the mistakes of our past. Mm -hmm. Is that the only reason it's important? Mm -hmm. what, are, what are the other avenues? So actually that question makes me think of relatively early in the year, uh, right now, in the last couple of years, I introduced them to the poem by Amanda Gorman done at Biden's inauguration and to uh, Senator McCain's farewell speech that's read by a staffer of his after he dies. And I asked them to think about where do they hear American ideals expressed at all in those two pieces, either jointly overlapping or completely separate. And especially I try to give a little of the biography of both of the people. So they see them as pretty different. You know, Amanda Gorman, roughly 25 when she does that. Uh, Senator McCain, roughly 81. I don't exactly remember how old he is when he does. Coming from very different parts of the country, you know, uh, pretty different experiences, what does it mean? And I think I tend to focus on the ideals, both stressing that, you know, we haven't lived up to those ideals, but that that's what we're sort of pointing towards and attempting to live towards. So um, eventually, in terms of that ideal of e pluribus unum, that really what binds us together as a people are those political principles and not um, identity, not that sort of melting pot idea of assimilation that we had, you know, I don't know, 1950 and before. I'm also curious about, you know, how you've experienced seeing moments in your life and your experience become part of history. Like I wasn't around in the 90s, right? And the 90s are in textbooks now. So what does that process look like? And, mm -hmm. uh, how does it feel to you, I guess? Mm -hmm. Actually, one of the um, clips that we just watched in, in AP GovHall, I remember the first time I saw it, I said out loud, that is not how I experienced the Reagan era. The way it's presented in this film, it's about um, a religion and uh, the evangelical movement supporting Reagan. That's not how I, as a young person, saw Reagan or understood him to stand in terms of the political landscape of the U.S. at that point. It's really interesting to look back and see how things get framed. One thing as a teacher that I have thought of late, I started teaching here about 16 years ago. And in the beginning, students were very interested, seemed to always want to ask about the 60s. And now students virtually never do I hear a student ask about the 60s. And so I just think it's interesting how the, the focus shifts. Yeah, yeah, that is super interesting. Uh, how does your relationship with the country and its history change, do you think? Here, uh, I go back. My very first position out of college, or one of my early positions out of college, was working for a peace and justice organization. And it was interfaith. Uh, so it was a variety of different clergy that I was primarily interacting with. And, you know, when I would sit at those board me meetings, listening to people who were at least a couple of decades older than I was, expressing a great deal of skepticism. Remember, they're coming out of, you know, the 60s and 70s, the end of the Vietnam War, all that that entailed 
and I, you know, uh, was just being born, you know, not really aware of that stuff at the time. So, um, I mean, as a kid. And so they expressed a degree of both aspiration about, around social justice, but also a degree of skepticism around the U.S. government that took me a while to absorb, I guess. And I guess I think one of the nice things about teaching U.S. history is being reminded of those aspirational things, even though in some ways they're each incomplete. You know, Lincoln, we can, as you said at the beginning, mythologize our particularly favorite leaders, whoever they might be. They all have their flaws. And so to recognize those and see the way in which they attempt to be grappling with their own shortcomings is inspirational. Tell me more about your experience with politics uh, before you arrived at PHS. Mm. Well, so I worked for this peace and justice organization, as I said, um, in Michigan for several years. And then I uh, worked on, um, he's now a, a relatively well-known economist, but at the time he was getting his PhD and he decided to run for what had been a very safe Republican seat in the U.S. Congress. And so I worked as part of his team on his campaign and then began um, being certified to teach. My undergrad degree was in philosophy and then moved to DC and worked on gender equity and education kinds of issues. So more of a kind of activist background, social justice kind of focus before I came into teaching. Yeah, so why is the, the end goal teaching? How, how, how do you think teaching impacts uh, the kids you come into contact with? Mm -hmm. I think one of the great things, uh, first off, about seeing young people as ninth graders and then seeing them as seniors is like the amount of growth, not just in knowledge base, but their whole sense of themselves and the world around them over the course of those four years is really, I think, pretty remarkable here. And I guess what I mostly hope to do as a teacher is encourage students to think about where they fit into this sort of landscape. Are they interested in just being an observer for now? Are they more of an activist right from the start? I've had students who are both. And just inviting them into that conversation a little more so that kids who have felt pretty disconnected from politics and history begin to think, oh, this somehow might relate to me and my life and what I want to do. I guess that idea has, you know, it has roots in the, in the very earliest stages of our country's education. You had mm -hmm. Jefferson being like, mm -hmm. you know, the goal of this education is to prepare kids to, and, and students uh, to interact with uh, our democracy. And that idea has prevailed. So I guess I'm wondering what happened. The amount of civic engagement, it's not that it's falling across the board in the United States, but like the Ember Policy Center writes that right now, less than half of Americans can name all three branches of government. What's, what's going on? <laughs> I know. When I see those, sometimes I will give my students a civics quiz like they give uh, those organizations do in polls um, just to see how students will do at the beginning of the year. But um, one thing that was really striking when I went to be certified to teach, you know, it's like essentially getting a second bachelor's degree and being exposed to the idea that really public education is about 
preparing students to be productive members of society. And I, it's not that I detest that idea, but that's not what draws me to teaching. You know, the idea of us being sort of cogs in some machine and our role is to keep the machine moving is, is not a very appealing or inspirational kind of goal for me. And so I shied away from that. I, I think it's much more about creating an engaged and educated enough to be engaged kind of public. That thing that I think our founders were after um, when they endorsed the idea of funding public education so that every voter had the opportunity to be informed before they were voting. Yeah. You hear people say, oh, I'm not, I'm not interested in politics. I think it's, it's a little eye roll inducing. But uh, once people are informed, once they become informed voters to be, do they have a responsibility to become, you know, civically engaged or, or engaged in, you know, the process of voting? Well, my answer, we, you asked this question at a particularly difficult time <laughs> um, in terms of what I understand public opinion to be around this right now. But my general feeling is, yes, that being engaged in voting is an important civic duty and I understand that um, it can be, what shall I say, twisted by people who may not have uh, the best intents. But I do think that if we give in to cynicism, then we are in a much worse place. It's actually one of my concerns as a high school teacher is I think since the pandemic, I'm not blaming students for this, but I think that many took this sort of hang back kind of position when we were remote for so long and that it's taking some students a while to spring back from that and that they've developed in the meantime this like uh, who cares just you know get through the courses who cares about high school and so forth and I I really hope that we recover from that as a learning community because I think it's really it it fosters the wrong kind of thinking about what it means to be a democratic republic. Um, and so I guess that's what I'm trying to convey without saying to students, I hope you're not cynical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and insofar as that ability to, to go out and vote and, and to make your voice heard in the political sphere is so important. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the curriculum, right? Not including, you know, the AP Gov Hall for curriculum, but also including the, all of the other courses you teach. Do you think it can focus too much on building knowledge and too little on actually actionable pieces of information? Mm. Yeah, actually, uh, going back to the previous one about the cynicism kind of thing, one of the reasons I see cynicism as so destructive to us as a society is because not only then are your voices not being recorded when we are electing leaders, but we also face the climate change crisis. And I, I think that we have to... Um, understand, even if we didn't help create this problem, as young people, of course, did not, that we all have to sort of take on this burden and do what we can to turn things around. And that cynicism is that almost like a form of learned helplessness that is not going to get us to the right place. So I'm very committed in response to the question to the idea of trying to come up with ways for students to be a little more proactively engaged in their studies. And it's hard in a history course that's pre-Columbian to late 1800s to think about things like that. But it's 
why I have tried to weave in climate change in a way that allows students to take a break from the straight history uh, or the chronological history and to think about their role today in the society. This idea of cynicism is really important, I think, to, to understanding, you know, how this new generation is going to be interacting with politics and how we can change it. I want to look at some, you know, causes uh, other than the pandemic uh, mm -hmm. for, for what might be driving us, specifically when it comes to politics. Mm -hmm. Do you have any opinions on how social media might have changed uh, the way we interact with the government? Yeah, so uh, no, I'm not on social media myself, except that a couple of years ago in teaching GovPaw, I decided to create a Twitter account so that I could follow certain political figures and especially on climate change. And so that's what I tend to do. And I remember mm, two years ago, maybe I suggested to my class, why don't we come on to Twitter as a group? and follow certain things. And one student was like, oh, Twitter is the worst and was deeply opposed to it. Um, and I said, okay, we won't do that. <laughs> Clearly, you know more than I do about um, the social media landscape. I, you know, of course, from following the news, I see us as living in the wild west in terms of social media. Government has not come in to regulate it enough yet. Um, I personally feel that young people you know, the idea that a ninth grader or an eighth grader might post something that becomes a permanent part of their record as they're thinking of applying to colleges, that just seems so wrong. And of course, we don't want to allow cyberbullying, but at the same time, it seems terrible that young people should have this thing with them that I believe should only be a burden of adults, not children. Um, so I see us as needing much more regulation of our social media landscape. And I think that what we have right now is so unregulated that it's, it's dangerous to us as a country. Yeah, and, and it also seems to have pushed people to political extremes. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess that's another thing that's really interesting to me when it comes to how you're teaching a class about American history or American politics, which is how do you keep you know, civics discussion civil? How do you let kids have differing viewpoints without creating, you know, a, a, a political space, right? Because you want to be like an apolitical presence if, in the way I understand it, maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I try to do is make sure that I'm presenting different points of view of well-known um, political um, figures so that students have to grapple with, even if they know the name and know it's someone they don't agree with or their family doesn't agree with, they at least have to pay attention to the reasoning and figure out where exactly does that person's reasoning not fit? You know, Where do they think there's a weakness in that argument and so forth? I see that as a really valuable point. And, and frankly, in AP GovPol, I think just giving space for students to be able to express their views because I, uh, my impression is that many students are pretty sophisticated in terms of their political views by their senior year, not everyone. Um, so my concern tends to be more for students who are really quiet because as a teacher, 
I don't know, you know, I don't know everyone's political views. And so I have no idea of, is that student being quiet because they feel there are others in the room who know more than they know, or that they're afraid their point of view is going to disagree with that person who's, who's talking a fair amount. And so that's my one, like, still I struggle with that. At the end of the day, I'll think, okay, which students didn't talk in class today and what could I have done that might have helped them talk? I, I guess as well, this connects to, you know, the feeling that so many people have, which is that so many issues are unbroachable right now. Mm -hmm. There's so much we can't say to each other because of gridlock and polarization, which are at highs. Uh, and I'm wondering if you, if you have any thoughts on starting from, you know, the classroom, right, which is where you have the most impact. What sort of language uh, you build to help kids talk to each other and, and try to move past that problem? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I haven't said yet in AP Gov, Paul, is that when people talk about how divided we are today, I am comforted by our history because we have lived through other times of great polarization. And while we're frustrated, many of us, by the degree of it today, there have been times in my lifetime where we've been frustrated by the way in which people had clumped all to the center, as if there was little room for real debate and uh, controversy. And so, you know, we are, in that way, I think the founders did a really good job of creating this very dynamic system that goes through these fluctuations. And that's not to say I don't think we're living through a very extreme time right now. But I do think that we've had others, and I hope, despite the New York Times suggesting that a re-election of a previous president could lead to dictatorship, I, I assume that we will see our way through that, that, that reason is fundamentally the thing on which our society is based and our politics is based, and that eventually we will come back to being able to see the other person's, the legitimate part of their point of view, even if we don't agree with them directly. It's part of the reason I start AP Gov Hall with Breyer and Scalia, because they are in very different camps, but manage to have very civil disagreements. <laughs> that disagreement also continually uh, comes back to the idea of the founders. And I think it's very hard to talk about America and to talk about American government or American history without you know, bringing them up. And, and, and you've mentioned them a couple of times in, in this conversation as well. Do, do you have thoughts on the way that we continually come back to the founders as a guide forward? And uh, do you have also thoughts about how, you know, our, our cynicism that you're seeing in a lot of places has extended to the founders in, in a very intense way as of late as well? Yeah, that's a good point about the cynicism towards the founders. Um, I do think that there are ways in which some of their fundamental premises, the one I'll use is like uh, Madison with Federalist 10 and the idea that factions can be contained because we're such a large republic and under such diverse conditions in various parts of the republic that no faction can overtake the country. I actually think that social media maybe gives the lie to that idea that we have may have outgrown James Madison's fundamental premise there and that we need you know, a new generation of political scientists to help us figure that out and, and um, maybe come up with some tweaks to our system or some regulations that will um, safeguard the general um, public. Of course, it begins to sound like I could be anti-free speech, which I'm not, but um, I do think there are ways in which the founders continue to 
provide us, as I said, with that dynamic system. I think they really did quite a masterful thing and it allows us to continue to play out these kinds of states' rights versus, you know, strength of the national government kinds of debates over and over again. But are there things missing? The voices of so many, right, at the time of the founding. Um, so do I think we could manage to create a new constitution right now? No, I, I think probably not right now. <laughs> Maybe in a few years, but not right now. So... I don't have an answer to that. I I have thoughts. And and it's so yeah, it's so tricky to talk about America in a way because there are so many things going into it, right? Like it's like Hamlet, you can interpret it however you want and it'll probably <laughs> probably work out. I, I am wondering as as you think about America, how your background in philosophy as an undergrad, how that affects the way you see our country. I actually just said to my ninth grade history students this afternoon, where we were talking about John Locke, and I said, he's a political, he was a political philosopher, and political philosophy is what I studied, loved it. I've also studied public health, which is like a, a very different and much more sort of applied field, and especially given the pandemic and so forth, really useful as a framing idea. So I think that both fields really, in a way, maybe what drew me to the two fields is that they both are thinking about us as groups of people. What is it? How are we going to live together in a society, political philosophy? How are we going to live together in a way that protects the health of everyone? take us on a little tangent here. I think it will come back to the central idea of, you know, political action and hope versus political inaction and cynicism. Um, tell me about the TEDx talk that you gave a couple of days ago. Really impressive that a couple of seniors organized that TEDx event. Um, I, in my time here at the high school, I'm not aware that anyone has done that before. So it's really impressive. The theme of the TEDx afternoon was change as each speaker defined it. So some speakers talked about looking at anger differently, experiencing a, a life-changing loss, gradual loss of vision and what that was going to do to her life and how she was grappling with it now. And for me, I focused on climate change. Um, and I, I think that... Uh, the thing I was trying to convey in that talk was just the ways in which, as a non-science teacher, as a matter of policy, how do you begin to expose kids to the um, policy and action dimensions of climate change in ways that are manageable for them so that it doesn't feel like a hopeless, overwhelming tsunami coming at us. That's so interesting. How do uh, you begin to introduce kids to, you know, the policy dimension of climate change? So one of the things that I've done is, starting with ninth graders, is I've introduced this framework that was developed by this international organization. It's called the Planetary Boundaries Framework, and it's looking at us as a global community in terms of um, interaction of various elements of the earth, of the physical, biological aspects of life. And um, so we studied that briefly. They developed a presentation 
we collaborated with an art class, my students introduced the art students to the nine planetary boundaries framework. And then together they chose one of those boundaries, uh, ocean acidification, and um, developed an art project around it to display what's beginning to happen to coral the dying of coral and the way that affects the ocean ocean life overall, marine life overall. So that was one that was meant to be like a bit of study leading to an action that was something they could put on display here in the high school. It was part of the end of the year art display last year. In my um, senior class, a group of students, um, it tends to be in the fourth quarter, I try to have us look at climate change related dynamics as we look at the six countries involved in um, comparative GovPol. And one group of students looked at divestment on college campuses as it was beginning to grow in the United States. And one of those students went on to college and became a key leader in the divestment, fossil fuel divestment at his university and came back to speak to my class about that the next year. So that was a nice, like, you know, uh, paying it forward kind of thing on his on his part. Talking about, you know, the comparative piece of uh, the GovPol course, you know, climate change is weird because we change the climate in the U.S. a lot and we don't experience those effects as acutely as, you know, other places around yeah. the world. I'm also wondering how empathy is built in the classroom. Okay. Well, in terms of climate change, so I, my knowledge is still very much, because I'm not a science teacher, it's still very much growing. I'm, I'm learning virtually weekly more about the topic. And with COP28 going on right now, <clears throat> one of the ideas that's been around for quite a while, I'm not exactly sure how many years, is the idea of creating an international fund into which countries that have disproportionately produced the problem would contribute funds to help the countries that are going to most directly, immediately, and already are experiencing the uh, negative um, impacts. And those tend to be in the southern half of the globe and island nations. In fact, there's one, I won't remember the name of the country, they have already begun to buy land in another country so that they will have a place that they're refugees, their climate refugees, will be able to go to. And that is, to me, sort of a mind-blowing uh, concept that, you know, there are nations already at that point, and here we are still, you know, I, I'm still driving a fossil fuel car. <laughs> I guess in terms of thinking about, you know, those other experiences as well, and trying to imagine, you know, what that would be like in order to, to spur you to action, uh, the, wow, this it, the link between that point and, and the question I want to ask is getting more and more tenuous as I'm speaking. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering how, as a history teacher, you you look at people in the textbooks and, and, and what it means to understand historical figures as living beings yeah. uh, and, and whether that factors into how your classes talk about these issues. In terms of empathy building kinds of things, I try, I mean, sometimes, of course, I, I'm teaching texts that are very straightforward political documents that, you know, the Bill of Rights and so forth. But at other points, I um, am trying to get them to, for instance, we do a sort of longer exploration of Jefferson in particular, and 
what he writes politically, what he says publicly, and then the whole question of how is it that you get to a person's intent? You know, when Jefferson says, I own that I don't know how to solve this problem. Well, does he not divest himself of slaves because he can't figure out how he could manage to financially survive if he didn't have them then? What exactly goes on for him? Is it, you know, is there so much self-interest that he can't? So in just getting kids to think about the various aspects of just Jefferson as a political leader who writes the anti-slavery clause in the Declaration of Independence, but at the same time as a slave owner who goes on to father children with, you know, I think she's 14 or 15 when she's pregnant with his first child, um, their first child. And uh, that is, for ninth graders, often sort of mind expanding in terms of thinking about, wow, here's this guy who says and does these really different things, which is really not that different from most of us. Not that I'm saying we're trying to be disingenuous, but we are conflicted beings. Um, and so I hope that helps them build empathy for Jefferson, but perhaps even more so for Sally Hemings, the slave with whom he has several children. Yeah, and there's so many of, of these internal conflicts within U.S. history and so many you know, wildly different outcomes occurring within within the span of a decade. Uh, I guess I'm wondering whether you think there are any constants to the country's history as you've, you know, studied it and taught it. Well, I guess there I would tend to both um, those American ideals that I tried to come back to in class, and then as I think they are expressed in our Constitution and Bill of Rights, I think I see those as the core of who America is on the road to becoming. And that is, I hope that does not sound like a, a laudatory thing about our past, um, but that as we grapple with that colonizing, exploitative past, that we are working our way towards a future that is, um, what shall I say, more devoted to the things that we say we're devoted to. The Statue of Liberty at the base, you know, um, the Emma Lazarus quote about, give me your huddled poor longing to be free. Well, Given our immigration debates today, it's hard to reconcile those two. But if we remember what we say we're about, then it might lead us more in that direction. That, I think, condenses so much of your argument, right? Which is that cynicism is a, a vote cast tacitly for, mm. you know, continuing to fail to live up to mm. those ideals. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, tying back to something you said earlier in the conversation about wanting to shift education away from being about being productive members of the capitalist workers. society. Yeah. I don't know how much Althusser you read uh, <laughs> as an undergraduate, but I'm in very strong vibes. But it feels like to some extent, education has to be a satellite institution of some set of values, right? Like an education doesn't feel complete to me if it's just sitting alone in your room, like with a textbook right, right, that just right. has the facts as they are. So where does education find its place within America, and do you think the job of education is to 
you know, reaffirm those American ideals and to help young people see them more clearly. Yeah, I would say to sort of expand on those American ideals. Um, and it's it's part of why I, I think education right now, public education is sort of, you know, uh, one center for the controversies and polarization our country is experiencing, you know, uh, states, communities that are banning books, for instance, things of that sort. So in a way, I think it's a good thing that education has come back into the uh, focus for the American public. What is going on in schools? Caring about what young people are being exposed to or aren't being exposed to um, is, I think, uh, a step away from cynicism. I think it is a step towards caring about what our youth are embracing, um, not because those are the only ideas. Um, you know, in that TED Talk I said, the ideas I present are sort of like pointing in a certain direction, and I hope students will take them on and turn them into something even more meaningful to them. Amazing. I think that's a really nice, a really okay. nice end to the conversation. Thank you very okay, much, amazing. Alex. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your <laughs> yeah. time. PHS Talks is a part of the multimedia section of The Tower, Princeton High School's student-run newspaper. It is written, produced, and edited by me, Alexander Margulis, with music by Otto Truman. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>